much like they, you go in you get sold on the whole concept an idea of what they're trying to build <coughs> they tell you some data and then you sign whereas now we our little tip that i can't remember who told us uh, oh jason girk from the franchise advisory he told us for every thousand dollars that your per year your that your lease uh, that you're going to sign so if it's a hundred thousand dollar lease you should it's worth it to you to spend a hundred hours there Consider it paying yourself a thousand dollars an hour, just to sit there, watch people. Like there's, there's not really like an app that you can buy or some sort of software or thing that you can do to check out and learn about the people in that local area. Like literally, sit there with a the clicker, walk up and down the street. We just take notes of what everyone's ordering. Oh, I saw five egg Benedicts out. I saw this many toast plates out. This many coffees out. The customers are these types of customers. Uh, they come out. Um, before nine, then they will go away and they'll come back at 11. Welcome to A Table for Two, inspiring and educational interviews and stories with the best operators, owners, and entrepreneurs in business and the hospitality industry. My name is Phil Halani, and on today's episode, we chat to Chris Sheldrick, co owner of Banksia Bakery, Thick Cookies, Big Brownies, and Passion Tree Velvet. Chris was born and raised in England. And after university at the age of 23, he was selected to join the New Entrepreneur Foundation, a paid program where every year they pick 25 of the future potential entrepreneurs of the country. It gave him the opportunity to meet amazing entrepreneurs and also have breakfast at Richard Branson's house. After meeting his girlfriend, now wife Hannah, he moved to Australia and helped grow Passion Tree Velvet from one store to 13 stores. They have since opened several other successful businesses and you get a feeling this is just a start. Chris's story is so interesting and inspiring, and one of Chris's greatest qualities is his ability to find the good in everything, and nothing's ever a problem. A quick shout out to our good friends at Procow Dairies, Sonoma Baking Co. and MD Providors, who are passionate about supporting small businesses, the hospitality industry, and also this podcast. I started the interview by asking Chris how he got his start in hospitality. So how I got my start in hospitality. Um... Well, if you ask my parents, they would always say that I was always uh, interested in working in the kitchen. But I started in hospitality maybe in around 16 or 17 um, in London, and I would work uh, events. So I'd work in a lot of, um, used to work for an events catering company, but I would always do front of house. Um, that was around 16 to 17, and I did that for about five years. Um, but it also means that, so I eventually ended up, I went to university in London as well, and I did event management. Not, so I worked for an events company, and then I became the front of house events uh, manager. That's actually just, there's overall events manager, and then I would be handed sort of a checklist to then execute it. Uh, that's everything. So, circus in Hyde Park. Um, I worked in you know Royal Ballet, uh, green rooms across all TV studios and events. So it means that I've actually met a lot of celebrities as well. That's awesome. Uh, so you and so as in like I served them drinks. <laughs> and, so you were doing think, in the events. You were doing the catering, front of house, managing all the front of house. That's yeah. awesome. So, and uh, I really like that because. Every single event or day would just be totally different. And so you'd just be mm. setting up, executing, and then shutting down an entire operation, uh, either 
for one day or for a week or uh, I did the launch of a Mazda car and that was like three months uh, in a hotel and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but it doesn't mean that when I started the business over here, my little joke was that I used to work at, people say, oh, what's your background in hospitality? And I would say I worked at uh, the Buckingham Palace. Because I remember, so you were on a podcast with Jay from Storybox <laughs> um, and, and you mentioned that you, you worked at the Buckingham Palace. Yeah, 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 but then I have to say I was a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll still, that's still credit. Yeah, it was for their garden party. It was <laughs> for their, awesome. one of their gar summer garden parties and they did, one of the dishwashers pulled out and they have like eight dishwashers. Wow. And then so even though I was, so I got paid my front of house event, event management wage for to a be dish. a dishwasher with eight different dishes for about two weeks. It's pretty cool. Uh, a lot of fun, yeah. And, and so you obviously grew up in England? <laughs> yes, yeah. Born yeah. and raised? Yes, yeah. Beautiful. And so before we go on to the other questions, I guess you're in business now, you've seen business in London. Is there a big difference in business in London? Um, so just, well, from a cafe point of view, I think in, in, in London, it's probably changed now because I've been here for eight years. Okay. Just as, just as um, you know, the cafe culture here has changed over eight years. Yeah. But when I was in London, you would probably struggle as an independent um, cafe because people who are selling, uh, you know, specialty coffee or doing it in the proper way would actually tend to be Aussies. Like there would be two or three places run by Aussies, mm. but you'd have to know why that cafe was good because uh, you'd have to have a follow. You'd have to like be following. Okay, yeah. yeah you'd yeah. have to be have an interest in coffee, whereas. Yeah. Um, and the popular places would be like Cafe Nero or um, Costa Coffee and these chains that like people would rather go to a chain than risk going to an independent coffee place. Whereas when I came over here for the first time, that was one thing I noticed is everyone wants to go to a independent coffee shop here. Instead of a chain. Instead of a chain. Um, I have a feeling that that's now changed. I think, I think, London, but. Uh, yeah, the, I think the chain opens the door for people like us to open businesses because if we know <coughs> it works from a chain point of view, we know we can offer personal touch. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely over the past 20, 30 years, I would definitely say something like Starbucks back in England, it's like a gateway coffee mm. to discovering more about coffee, even so though true. people like to shit on um, people at Starbucks. Uh, yeah, I think it's definitely a... They paved the way for us. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So, um, so obviously you... You said from 16, 17, you were in events management, front of house. Um, is HOSPO what you always wanted to do? Um, I would say working food business is something I always wanted to do. But what that might be, uh, not necessarily hospitality, front of house service. So um, after university, I uh, got into this program called the New Entrepreneurs Foundation, where every year they pick 25 to 30 of the future potential entrepreneurs of the country. How old were you at this point? Um, I would have been 23 or 24. Okay. Um, and of all those people, uh, I, was the only the, I was the only person really interested in the food businesses. So uh, I would be the one who take the most interest when we would meet, you know, people who are running food business. It basically was um, a year of meeting entrepreneurs who are still running their businesses so, for example, we started off with breakfast at Richard Branson's house, oh. and then we ended the year. Um, it was supposed to be with the prime minister, but it was ended up just being with uh, the minister for business at uh, uh, Westminster. So it's like a really prestigious one year, and we it, we got paid to be on it for a year as well. Wow. Um, but I ended up spending the year with 
uh, a tech entrepreneur. But um, I was always taking more interested in the food businesses who would come in and talk, but everyone else on there would be more interested in all the tech businesses. So um, I, I want to ask about Richard Branson in a second, but yeah. that's because that's pretty amazing. But what was it about the food food business that interested you? What was it that? <laughs> oh, I think so. I was so I did the year before that. I spent a year at tech companies, the startups. Okay. Because I'm also really interested in that. But uh, in London, I felt like that kind of uh, tech online startup business is a real like circle jerk. A lot of people talking about ideas and not really building anything. Mm. And um, I like the idea that you actually get to. And it's like people look at us now as well with all of our stores and because they can tangibly see what we do, they're more impressed than someone maybe who has a website who probably makes a yeah. lot more money than us. Um, but uh, it was, yeah, so I just spent, I was just spending a lot of time in a culture of people just talking about ideas and not really executing on things. And you don't really get to see what you're building. And then I got this opportunity to do bricks and mortar stores over here. And then that's what made me escape and come over to here. And I was only supposed to do a few years of building a couple of shops okay. and then maybe go back to it. But this is uh, more fun. I, I'm, I'm much happier working 18 hours a day on this than like at a computer, uh, not really tangibly seeing you know, what you're doing. Yeah. It's more, it's more of a basic approach. Like yeah. Because you, <laughs> like, you love people. So I think, I think it's yeah. this, this industry suits you to the <clears throat> I love going back there yeah, and... Just like that's why I like doing farmers markets and all that kind of stuff. Um, just love to, like talking and meeting and people. We, we don't mean you and we're together. We don't stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so let me ask you. So the the experience of I think everyone would want to know the experience of meeting Richard Branson. What was that experience like? <laughs> so it was it was a business breakfast. There was probably like twenty other people there. Um, there was ten people from our. Even though it was thirty people, and they only picked ten of us to actually go. I would say Richard Branson is very much a celebrity who meets a lot of people. So I met um, the guys who, so for example, also there was the guys who started uh, Innocent Innocent Smoothies. It's a big smoothie place that got bought by Coca-Cola okay. eventually. But just examples, so I, I didn't actually, I met Richard Branson and talked to him, but he's very much, um, when I met him, you know, he meets a lot of people. So uh, if you have met celebrities before, they're sort of just being polite. Uh, but, you know, they're going to meet a lot of people and move on. Whereas all the other business people on there were very engaging, um, very good to talk to. They remember your names and all that kind of stuff. So um, I wouldn't say meeting Richard Branson was necessarily the... The highlight. The highlight, yeah, because he just... Uh, <coughs> I don't know, his headspace head is filled with meeting a lot of yeah. other people. And... Uh, all the other business people, I think they were also just as happy to be at Richard Branson's house. Yeah, I think it was just being, <laughs> being in the presence, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, but when he taught, it's weird because he actually, when he's talking to everybody, he's a lot more engaging than when we were having, when we have to talk one by one. But um, he was obviously having to get round to everybody. Of course. Um, yeah. But when he when he talks, he's, he's welcoming you to his house. Yeah, very nice, very engaging. Very Absolutely nothing negative about. I'm just saying that you, I didn't really get anything out of one-on-one -on -one personal. Experience. It's more the. It's more just the ability to show off. Oh yeah, just <laughs> breakfast at Richard Branson's this morning. What do you do? Just, just casually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what, what did you get the most out of that one year? Um, you said it was one year in the entrepreneur. <clears throat> yeah. What did you get the most out of that? Um. What did I get the most out of that one year? What did you gain out of that year? 
um, actually, like more, from a more practical point of view, so before that, I always doing and starting and running my own businesses. I had like a, I was an eBay power seller, um, uh, selling like I had an eBay business when I was like 15, 16, 17, and always starting like I had started a couple of apps and things before that. So I always had that, and that's one of the reasons was I got onto that program because you had to like be able to demonstrate uh, why you should be on there. So the the whole like I don't have any fear of sort of starting something and failing. But the more practical thing that I learned that year was all the finance, uh, so like um, finance for entrepreneurs, sort of things that we got taught. Mm. That's the more practical thing. Like before that, it was just you sell some stuff and you try to make a little bit of money, and then you calculate everything else out later. Mm. But that year, definitely learned a lot about or properly like P and Ls and. And that's stuff, that stuff, stuff people don't really understand until they get into the business. So yeah, unfortunately, that's one of those things that people always seem to – you have to, almost have to start a business from passion and then fuck up and then <laughs> uh, uh, learn later that you've lost a lot of money by not having your finances right. So that, that experience <laughs> – that, that's so true. And that experience from um, the entrepreneur um, course, was it, did that set you up for what you have now, the P&Ls, <laughs> et cetera? Um, no, I still fu- we still fuck up a lot yeah. and, and along the way. But uh, the other thing from that was just the network, meeting other people. I look at a lot of people that, like ask questions uh, and talk to about issues. In the same way, the other way, mm-hmm. like people ask questions and gain to check and pass ideas by. Nah, it's very but, exciting. Uh, Your story is so interesting, and <coughs> in, in you know, growing up in London and. But always food. Like uh, so, every trip I ever did was all based on food. When I was when I graduated high school or secondary school in England. Well, the first thing I did, my, my friend Paolo, we went on a man versus food road trip around America where we just drove around America and went. Then only two seasons of man versus Do you know man versus yeah, food? Yeah, of course, yeah. The only two seasons of man versus food was out uh, and we just tried to hit up as many. We spent two or three, I think two or three months, like our maximum visa time. And it was just all based around oh, wow. hitting all the man versus food places. So we started in Boston at the at a crab place and, and ended up all the way down in uh, San Diego Um and hit, you know, all the places in between, Tennessee, all around Texas, hitting all the uh, steak places and barbecue places. I love that. And I didn't know that about you. And I think what's cool is anyone in the industry has that obsession or passion for, <laughs> like everyone wants to go out and eat, but you went to America purely just to do this, you know, which is, which is amazing. And that's so. 2008 or 2009. So you had to, like we had a physical map because uh, we didn't have like smartphones weren't as prevalent to have like Google Maps to yeah. go around. <laughs> So like phys- physically have a map and like plot along all the different restaurants, and then most of those restaurants wouldn't have an online profile. So you just have to some of them whether they be open or not, um, as well. Like where they have you know, people close on Mondays, sort of sort of issue. But um, yeah, I've always just been following food. I would say like a uh, yeah, because I probably, I don't really have any other creative abilities apart from uh, food. Well, if you're getting invited to Richard Renz's house, you're doing alright. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, that's exactly like like you keep bringing it up. But it's so is, cool. It's Saint Richard Brant's house is just literally just a thing to show up. There's not really any other. I'm gonna use it. You know, I'm gonna use it in the intro <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, so all right, so let's talk about obviously. Um, you said at 20. What, how old were you when you came to Australia, and what brought you to Australia? Wait, how old am I now? Uh, I came over in 2013. Okay. And my it's because my uh, now I so I was doing the this my now wife. She was doing gap year in England okay. as well, um, and 
this was for our first business, Passion Tree. And so they struggled to come up with a name for it. So I named it. And then they got some quotes for marketing and web development and those types of things, which were like four or $5,000 for brand development, all that kind of stuff. Sorry, just, just to go backtrack a little bit. You, when you met your now wife, mm-hmm. you met her overseas and then she told you they were doing a business here? <laughs> I met her at KFC in Korea. Okay. And then, wow. <laughs> and then we kept in touch and then she came to uh, England for a year, um, for a gap year. And uh, it was sort of during that period, they're working on... Uh, Dessert bar, patisserie. Okay, they're working on it here concept. in Australia, and yeah. then you're over there, and you. So her family, okay. who we still all work together here now. Yeah. Um, and they got a quote for like four or five thousand dollars for brand development, which I, which is kind of correct, but it's not really something, you know, worth spending. Well, I can do all of that work. <laughs> I can use all the soft, the design software. Yeah. And I can build websites and stuff. So I was doing. I named the business. Did all the did most of the marketing design website type stuff, and I was just running that in my spare time in England. And then uh, after a while, when when Hannah it was time for Hannah to return, uh, they flew me here to Australia to see the work because it's nice to like you you make a you know you organize for like the logos and menus and stuff, and then to go and see it printed and a big sign done up. Uh, and then, so they flew me over to see it because I just doing it all for free. It's just, you know, awesome. it's not much work. You're dating Hannah, obviously. You're <clears throat> yeah. happy to help. For yeah. you, use what you enjoy anyway. And thank you. Like, they flew me over. And also just to fly over and meet the family cool. anyway. So you guys are pretty serious <clears throat> when you came over? Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and then when I was over here, we were just talking about it. And then it just, the idea came up to grow it. Um, because Passion Tree, says Passion Tree, there's Passion Tree Velvet, which is the uh, evolution of Passion Tree. Passion Tree was supposed to be a patisserie, but that's like 2012, 2013. And at that time, you know, Max Brenner was popular, Santuros was really popular, Breadtop was popular and growing at that time. Uh, frozen Yogurt was really big. Mm. Muchi, Nogi, all those brands. So, but they weren't in Brisbane yet. None of them were in Brisbane. You, no, you Brisbane CBD. To, and you were in Gold Coast. <clears> yeah, time. yeah. Okay. Well, I was living in the Gold Coast, but the first store was in Brisbane CBD. Okay. 103 Elizabeth Street. So, um, and there was no Max Brenner, no Santuros, no none of those brands. I think there was a bread top on the other side of town, uh, CBD. But so what? And my point is that it's like that feature creep that you start building supposed to be a patisserie then you add bread top items then you add all max brenner type chocolate items then you add froyo so the eventually when the first store opened it had like five different sections <coughs> trying to do everything the that's fine like it was it um urban spoon which is now zamato used to have a list of the top 10 uh trending places in every city and we were like top 10 for a year or two. So it was really popular, but it's just that the things that were popular were all the desserts and not necessarily the patisserie. Okay. So the when um, came over and we had to talk about it, it's like, oh, why are we doing this? And it's actually really the patisserie because that was one of the items and spaces where at the time the level was not uh, so great. Here in, even in, oh, I think Sydney was right. Melbourne was good. Sydney, 
just um, there weren't that many places. Maybe the only real places you could list off were maybe I think Zumbo at the time and mm. the Renaissance. Um, but in Brisbane, it it was not really familiar with people. Um, and then we came up with the plan that we should go and do a we should maybe grow a couple of stores and then build off that central kitchen to get more value out of that central central kitchen by building more patisseries yeah. and cut off all the other stuff. The um, yogurt, the... Yeah. Because yeah. that required a lot of manpower to run five different sections. Um, the wage cost will be through the roof. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, and then so we built the second one and we rebranded it to Passion Tree Velvet. We... So I, like, I think I like to say where people come up and they ask us about the branding uh, and how we came up with Passion Tree Velvet. Passion Tree Velvet is very much, you go into a shopping center and normally like a coffee shop or a cafe is, is a man, a male who is a passion for coffee um, and they design their cafe and is always sort of dark and black and, you know, um, can be moody or it's totally like their signature. But then the, the majority of the customers are uh, in shopping centers tend to be uh, females and family. So we tried to go, we tried to brand it and design it backwards. So like, what do they want? And then come up with everything backwards from there. That's why it's much lighter, softer, um, comfortable. I mean, it's more common now, but at the time that was our, our thinking. So that's why we came up with Passion Tree Velvet and try to, as, uh, we were thinking it'd be more of a tea room sort of concept with um, all the patisserie items, but tea room, it just doesn't pick up. So, I mean, coffee is, was really popular anyway mm. uh, at that first store. And then we did that first store, and then all the leasing people, that's at Carindale Westfield, and leasing people from everywhere, they just come and they go, this is a great concept. I mean, uh, we want you in our shopping center, and of course, now I know that it's just sort of ticking a box to say, okay, we need to add a cake shop yeah. into our, our portfolio mix type thing. And then we got a couple of really good deals. So then we went to like Rabina, et cetera. But, and, all this, and we would you know, op open one store, then do another store, because it just was save, just cutting on our cost of goods, uh, like just operating out of a central kitchen. Yeah. Because we didn't build a patisserie in every location. Um, we just had one. So really, it's not even much. You don't even have to pay more. The same staff just make bigger batches. Uh, and then we just distribute it out. Um, and we were thinking, things were going well. So we were thinking we'd become a big chain, open loads and loads of stores. So over the, the two or three years after that, we got to, I think, 10 stores, including in Sydney here. <coughs> Um, but then you really have to make a decision whether you're going to become really big and like try to, you know, fast paced growth, get to like 50 shops and go crazy. And then you have to hire all a whole bunch of like, middle management. Um, cause even at 10 stores, we don't have a, you know, me, Josh, Aileen. So Josh is Hannah's brother. So me, Hannah, Josh and Aileen, we run. The whole business, not just me. Okay. Hannah's my wife. Josh is her, is her brother, and then Aileen is his partner. And then we've just been running everything for the whole time. All the business. Uh, yeah. So wow. there was like there's like a once we got like ten stores, eleven stores, and that's pretty tough. And that's a lot of hours. So we 
after that, you start having to like, oh, do I need to, if I'm going to grow, I need to maybe hire a, like an operations manager, a marketing manager, a production manager, all these different things. And then once you've done that, you then need to chase that growth. So if I have all those middle management people, I do need to get the 30, 40, 50 stores. Were you not interested in doing that? Um, no, because the you could already, you could tell and you could see the traje- trajectory of like other businesses um, who went through that and then the quality goes down. Very quickly. The, I think eventually really though, all of those companies lose money. Like over like a 10-year life cycle, if you look back, 10 years ago, all the chains that have sort of rinsed, you know, gone through that sort of wash cycle, they would just get reported suddenly they've all closed down or suddenly they're, you know, no good anymore. Uh, I mean, you can list tons of chains that have done that. Yeah, and, and I think I think the thing is a lot of people, they have a great concept, they grow it, and then from, yeah. like you said, 5 to 10, it's kind of manageable, but then you need to hire the middle management, the operations yeah. managers. So, so what was... And essentially, they all become like, you can take... I oh, don't know, think of any, like, a cookie chain that might be out there. They're supposed to be, like, cookies, but you go in there, they sell toasties and coffee, and that's really where they make the money. Yeah. Uh, or, I don't know, some chains, some churro chain. <laughs> right, people go there for coffee, and their churro machine is almost never on. Yeah. Uh, only certain times of the day, but... Um, so, so with the ten, you get to 10 stores, and then you decide to change your direction? We decided to concentrate on those 10 stores and make the... Cause Every store, it's so distant from the next store that all the customers in those stores think that that's their cake, local cake shop. Mm, okay. Yeah, so people don't, even, people don't always realize that we have uh, that many stores. And so we wanted to try to protect that experience. And then, you know, you'd open another store and it'd be, you just, it's just not worth the return. And then you compare it to other people, like maybe a Percy Plunkett type location where they get to just work and concentrate on one experience mm. and they, they'll be turning over the same with one location yeah. than we do with like 10. Because uh, essentially the reason people grow past 10 to 20 to 50 is to build and sell. Yeah, <clears throat> which I don't know, that, that would have been a long journey and I, I feel like it's quite risky. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, because you'd expose yourself, expose yourself to a lot of um, you know, leases and mm. staffing and so, so a lot of headaches along, along we're, we're, journey. So before we get on to your other businesses that you've created <coughs> since, how many stores do you currently have of Passion Tree Velvet? Um, how many do we have? Nine? Wow. Yeah. And so is there... Oh, we got to 13 stores. So you did build a 13? We got to 13, yeah. And the other ones, did you close them because the lease was finishing? Leases are finishing yeah. or negotiate our way out. We negotiated our way out too. We had to pay a bunch of money to get out, mm. break those ones. And then the other ones, just lease expiry. What did you learn from the ones that were that, that you had to kind of get yourself out of? Um, both those ones we had to get ourselves out of. We just believed the information sheet that the leasing people uh. gave us. Like this is the local average income this is how many people live in that area so those we were well, those ones were two of our first four or five stores that we eventually wow. got ourselves out of and then it's sort of after that those, those are very much like they, you go in you get sold on the whole concept an idea of what they're trying to build <coughs> they tell you some data 
and then you sign. Whereas now we, our little tip that I can't remember who told us, uh, oh, Jason Girk from the Franchise Advisory, he told us for every $1,000 that you're, per year you're, that you lease, uh, that you're gonna sign, so if it's a $100,000 lease, you should, it's worth it to you to spend 100 hours there. Consider it paying yourself $1,000 an hour. Just to sit there, watch people. Like there's there's not really like an app that you can buy or some sort of software or thing that you can do to check out and learn about the people in that local area. Like literally sit there with a the clicker, walk up and down the street. We just take notes of what everyone's ordering. Oh, I saw five egg Benedicts out. I saw this many toast plates out, this many coffees out. The customers are these types of customers. Uh, they come out... Um, before nine, then they will go away and they'll come back out at 11 and they come out at 12 and all that kind of stuff. So just really manual. I like, love that because there's nothing fancy or technical about it. You go there, you check the site out yeah. and then you do that. Because a lot of people, if you're not prepared to do that, you shouldn't be prepared to open yeah. a business, right? Because you're going to spend 300, 400,000 and the rest of your life, like the next few years there yeah. all the time. So That's such great advice, Chris. I really appreciate that. Um, so with Passion Tree Velvet, are you wanting to grow it any more very slowly? Will you look at, will you say, are you going to say no to every opportunity for Passion Tree or you'll look at? Uh, we probably wouldn't be doing any more. Okay. Yeah, so, so we actually stopped really looking at sites maybe I think four years ago. And that was very much because we were in the best shopping centers. So we were in Macquarie, Castle Hill, Broadway Shopping Center, Pacific Fair, Rabina, uh, Toowoomba Grand Central, Canberra Center, Carindale, and Indrapilly. So we're in like the best centers in Brisbane, uh, Gold Coast and Sydney, and Canberra and Toowoomba. So any other shop would kind of like a lesser location. Mm. Um, and they're sort of, they're in such good locations and shopping centers that in those little communities, they stand as their own little flagship okay. shops. Yeah. None of uh, them are franchised, right? Uh, and so some of them are franchised. We have three franchises. Okay. Yeah. That was like an idea early on that actually someone came to us and said, we really want to franchise a shop. And then we had to learn about franchising. Um, and then we did, sort of went, did a thing where you sell one off as a franchise and that can fund the next shop. So I think that was like our third or fourth store. And then we realized that that was the way some, you know, somewhat. But what that actually ended up being was that we were selling off our most profitable stores because they're worth the most money. So <laughs> cash flow is good for the franchisees, but not, not necessarily as good for us. Yeah. But uh, probably not because, and we, so stopped, we stopped opening shops maybe four years ago. And actually that was because, you know, the economy goes on five to seven, eight year cycles. So, and I, and uh, historically, I think, I feel like shopping centers get, shopping center retailers get hit hard during uh, uh, economic dips. Yeah. So we're like, we'd be signing a lease in, the, if we signed a lease in the next year or two for five, six, seven years, we would be we'd be riding out uh, an economic crash that is due and then we just have to struggle for four or five years and then we'd come out of an economic crisis and then the suddenly and then we'd have to renew the lease and then they'd be like oh everything's going up again so you have to pay more yeah so we're just thinking let's take a pause <clears throat> concentrate on uh, our stores we've already got having really great product uh, and our product has gotten so good over the past four or five years in that time. 
yeah. Quality control. Uh, yeah, and then uh, it's better to have fewer really great stores and locations than have a huge network, especially because our product is quite, it's not really, you have to be, it has quite, because it's cakes, it's quite, a, you have to make it desirable, a desirable product. Mm. And, you know, you've got to maintain a reputation to, you know, to be the best. And you can't just, you can't let that get away from you. So that was very much like a very active decision. And we, before that, we would try to have a lot of automation. And when people order a cake, it's very much, you only just get this one and it's very difficult because uh, it is quite difficult to manage lots and lots of different custom stuff. And after that, we were like, we should be much more personal. Like when you send an email or call the stores, you you get you end up just talking to the owners. Yeah. Whereas before we were trying to come off as like a big brand chain, like very professional like that. Yeah, <laughs> and bit, so yeah. part of that was then we spent a year doing, uh, concentrating on trying to cater for weddings and going to wedding conventions and all that kind of stuff and mm. took that as a different approach to opening stores. And that was a lot of fun. Meet a lot of people, uh, you know, be part of people's special days. And so that was going really well eventually until something happened last year. Well, a lot of, a lot of wedding cancellations. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to talk about COVID, but you touch on a couple of points. Um, I want to talk about we're, we're leasing in Westfields, but I think the idea of you making you wanting to make your business more personalised, you know, responding to the email personally and not trying to have a generic email. Like we we even at Percy's now, you can still make a booking through Instagram and Facebook, and even though it makes things a little bit harder, we want to give them the we want to make it personal. You know, yeah. well, I say that's what we want to do. I'm not saying we've really achieved it are you still, still working very on difficult. it yeah yeah that's it's still very difficult to make offer but the fact you're wanting to do that you want to create more quality and better experiences <laughs> yeah. right um what leasing in westfield or any shopping center yeah. what's your advice to anyone wanting to lease in a shopping center advice for just do what you want to do if it works for you the the i leasing people yeah they bend the truth all that kind of stuff but really they don't know anything about your business it's mm. not really like their fault like they were talking to a lot of different people. If you're just like generally in the category of food or cafe and they'll go, yeah, these other places do well, don't just like believe them. Uh, and it's not necessarily because they're specifically lying about a space and they just don't know your category and your customers. And they really, they shouldn't. That's like your responsibility to know. Yeah. Uh, um, and just because they think that your business fits here because it works on their paper plan that they've drawn up and someone's done, it doesn't, it's really you gotta <laughs> yeah, you gotta do the work to really figure out and there's even that, do the work to figure out if you those local customers will if they're your customers and stuff. I think there's not even a science to that. Like so said, just do I, what you wanna do. If it like and also don't worry about missing out on a location because it's a great location. Like uh yeah, wouldn't wouldn't get uh, too stressed out about losing a site. Uh yeah. Because you get you can get stuck in the wrong site for a long time. It's a bit cliche, but everything happens for a reason. So you miss out on a site, you get another site opportunity coming up. So. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't really worry too bad because they the leasing people get you riled up about oh don't miss out. Yeah, you've got to sign this now. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of hidden costs. So I would say if you're maybe opening a, a shop, maybe reach out to someone else who's done it and ask them. Uh, what do you think about this deal? Great advice. Someone will point out, like, oh, you're paying for your own category ones here. Each core hole is going to cost $4,000 to put a hole in the floor to get some plumbing. 
uh, oh, look at this. You have to trench like 100 meters. It's going to cost you like $60,000. you got to put your own air conditioning in and exhaust. Oh, where's the exhaust thing connect to? Oh, that's going to be $100,000. Didn't know that? <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Because uh, that's a lot of money, especially people who just, you know, they have a job, they saved up money, and then are opening a shop, like where they've had a salary before, and, you know, maybe make $1,000 a week. And then open a shop and then suddenly someone says, oh, that's an extra $5,000. Oh, that's an extra, I'm spending a month and a half mm. of your previous salary to put a hole in the floor. So many hidden uh, costs. And then like you said, a lot, your first business, no one expects any of that, right? Yeah. So, um, you obviously, since Passion Tree Velvet, you've, you've started um, Thick Cookies, Big Brownies, and also um, your most recent Banksia Bakehouse. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about each business and, and essentially how it came about? Yeah, so when we took that pause for Passion Tree Velvet, like deciding not to open any more stores, uh, I think chains don't necessarily do well in downturns, but independent great experiences and great operators do fine during downturns. Uh, so then, and also Passion Tree Velvet was very much branded as, so as a patisserie, at the beginning it was branded as, oh, we are a French Parisian style patisserie. But then over the years, uh, you sort of realize that you don't need to say, it's better just to say you're an Australian patisserie than to say you're a French patisserie. That's all, you know, like a, uh, people know that it's French style or French inspired. So we moved away from that messaging with Passion Tree and we wanted to create like this is the Australian patisserie. That is good patisseries in the city, but they are they are the same. Like you can have a, sorry, you can have like a really good patisserie, and you can have really shitty patisserie cake shops. The whole spectrum of quality, and they all call themselves French patisseries. Mm. Uh, whereas you know we really wanted to be we're using almost almost all Australian ingredients and products anyway. Like it's pretty much just I think just like our coffee and our chocolate doesn't come from Australia, um, so. And we, uh, I really love all native flavors and plants here in Australia. Like, and so we wanted to create an Australian patisserie um, and have it just one place with a great experience that we can change up stuff all the time based on what's seasonal and what's cool and interesting. Pastry is a bit more difficult with that because we've got to train all the staff in all the stores how to sell it, all yeah. the ingredients. So launching a product of Pastry Velvet can take two or three months. Whereas a Banksia just changes every day depending on what the guys are interested in and what's like available. You can be more creative. Yeah. And so we decided that we were going to start doing that about three years ago. Look for one place, bake it, everything in there as well and have all the staff there and have it a bit more theatrical that people can see. Because in the city here in Sydney, you can't, any bakery or patisserie that there is, they're actually not making it there and you can't see them making it there. Like we don't have, we don't have to tell people how fresh the product is because they literally just see the people Seen making it. it. Yeah. And that does exist in almost every other city around the world where there is some sort of bakery that you can go and see the theater and watch people make it, but not in Sydney. Uh, so that was what we wanted to do. We basically spent a year looking for a location. Um, <clears throat> we found the perfect location which happens which is difficult for other restaurants to operate in because it's got three walls of glass but that's actually Perfect. exactly what we want because it's not really a restaurant that requires big seating area and a big yeah. commercial kitchen we actually want the kitchen to take up most of the space um 
Yeah, and part of it being an Australian place is that it's called, uh, yes, it's called Banksia Bakehouse. Uh, the colour scheme is, you know, um, reds and browns, uh, dark, you know, sort of dusty colours. There's um, a kind of Australian outback. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, and so when people come to Sydney, as well, okay, so the, this is two or three years ago. We've been working on it for three years. So our original idea is when all the tourists come <laughs> to Sydney CBD, you know, if you look on like what are the things I should do when I'm in Sydney or what are the foods I should try, one of the items is like um, like lamingtons, uh, meat pies, meat pies for example, meat pies and sausage rolls. Like if you, not come from England because we have those in England, but if you come from Asia or in America, totally. those are like one on the list of things to have. But then in the city, the, apart from like Pie Face 7-Eleven, there's not really anywhere to get a pie that you know is just made right there. Yeah. Even that's not essentially at that point. You can't get a really good quality pie apart from maybe over in Burke Street in Barangaroo, which is, you know, a business district. And then you have to get down to Surrey Hills uh, before you start getting to really good quality stuff. So um, pies, fresh baked goods, and uh, it's called Banksia Bakehouse because also the idea of a bakehouse is quite um, Australian as well. Like you go to your little regional country towns, they'll have like a bakehouse in the yeah. city. And so we wanted us to bring all those things together, uh, create one really good concept, and then just be like the destinational place for cakes, bakery, all that type of product. Which, um, you know, if you go to Melbourne, there's a load of great places in the CBD that do that, but not not really in in Sydney CBD. Maybe one or two places. So you see the gap in the market. There's just, yeah, just a gap. And it's definitely one of those things where you can question and go, wait, maybe it won't work because no one else is doing it. But then we have the expertise to do that and we're not doing it and we're just like hoping that someone else investigated it and decided it wouldn't work. Mm. So it's going to be the aisle risk to take. Well, it's kind of like the tech startup where you said there were so many ideas but no one was doing it. You had yeah. this idea but... <clears throat> yeah, and, and part of that is as well i mean that's where thick cookies comes in so we started working on the recipes and product development everything like three years ago while we were looking for a site and one of the items was these cookies you know we say thick new york style cookies because it comes from uh levain bakery style cookies in new york and they're like a bakery that everyone goes there for the cookies so that's originally the con that's originally supposed to be part of banksia which it is and they are very popular at Bankster as well. So we had all these recipes and products developed and we're just waiting and looking for sites. Um, and so my job as well is just to, is like to grow the business, open stores. And so everything was sort of, I, I would have like, this is being delayed by six months. That's being delayed. Got to look for a new site. That site fell through. So I always had, I had a lot of free time. Uh, <laughs> and it's getting sort of stagnant with working in the office. So we, I put together the idea of thick cookies using a recipe we've developed for banks here anyway, uh, and then go to farmer's markets on the weekend. So we've been doing uh, thick cookie farmer's markets for like two years, pretty much waiting until banks here could uh, open. We're fortunate that thick cookies has been really popular and taken off on its own, so now it's still operating. Bridgie, it was just maybe something to, to fill the time for like uh, six months. I love that. Uh, because I love that product. It, I can see how passionate you are when you talk yeah. about the thick cookies. So, and I love the fact that you you had the time. You're waiting for other opportunities to start with um, Banksia, 
but you decided to create a, a, this business through another business, right? So, yeah. Um, so with Thick Cookies, um, tell us about it. Tell us about the, the craze of it. Like. Uh, yeah, so we, so I mean, I just, that's the same thing. Like I really was, I was waiting for other people to do the cookies. I was like, oh, I wish we can get this here in Sydney. And I was like, well, if I'm not, if we're not doing it, then why, who else is going to do it? Like we have the bakery, we have all the equipment, we have all the supplies, everything. We can just whip them up and make them right now. So that's why I wanted to add them to the Banksia menu. And um, I remember we did, we started off at Tea Festival two years ago. And I just thought, uh, so we have a thing at Passion Through Velvet where we just like, you always just try to make the display look as full as possible. If you do that thing where, you know, today was quiet, then you reduce the amount of stock in the display, then, you know, just to save some cost of goods. And then the next day, another day in a week, two's time, it comes quiet, so you reduce it again, and reduce it again until there's like not much left. You have to have like a full display to attract Every people. Every day. Yeah, to come over. Um, so I thought for Tea Festival, it would be the first time we're ever trying it. I'll just bring tons of stock and stack it up high. And then just at the end of the day, we'll see. And then we'll just learn a lot. Worst case, we've wasted a, like a thousand cookies and we lost some of that money, but we learned a lesson. And then just sold everything out in like two hours. Just ridiculous. Uh, and people never heard of it. And everyone's like tagging us and posting, going, these are the best cookies. Like, and we're like, oh. Uh, shit, we might be really on something. And it's funny because that very first one, because we were trying to run quite lean. Uh, that's why the branding is all black and yellow. It's basically all the uh, warning and emerge like warning tape that you can get from Bunnings. So the stall we just set up, I just went to Bunnings, saw, what, just was like, what can I get from Bunnings? I can quickly throw together a concept. And so we just got all the warning tape and like warning signs and road cones. And all kinds of all black and yellow, and then we just said, uh, "Warning, warning! Like uh, dangerously delicious cookies. Be That's careful!" Awesome. And all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so that was the first time we wear high vis and like helmets. Uh, the first market. That's, what you're that's the first market. Yeah, because like <laughs> like dangerously delicious cookies. Yeah, be careful! Yeah. And so people just loved it because the idea was, if it doesn't work, we can just return everything to Bunnings next yeah. day. <laughs> How good is that? Um, yeah, and then and then we. We'd always done markets. We've done markets uh, and festivals for the past few years with Passion Tree Velvet, but we have to bring so much equip equipment. Like we need a huge truck to bring refrigerated displays and all like hand wash basins, all these different, all this different equipment and set up and connections. So the events need to be like a week at least for it to justify how much equipment we need to bring in to do a Passion Tree Velvet event. Um, <clears throat> but the cookie one, we can just rock up with a table. We've made everything before and, um, and so it's just much easier operationally. One person can do it. And then pretty much spent seven, eight months, just my Saturdays, and just coming in and um, running a farmer's market. Because Hannah, my wife, she works here as production manager uh, in the bakery, but she's an optometrist. So on Saturdays, she works in optometry. Oh, wow. So I'm... So, you got the time. Yeah, so she's working. So, uh, so that's how I kept myself busy. And then... Um, yeah, thick, thick cookies, just people keep... It's quite viral because avoid any other food products, it's not really... It's not pretentious enough that you want to... That you feel embarrassed to show off. Like if you're eating caviar with champagne, it's kind of like pretentious to show off that you're having. Whereas a cookie is very familiar with people. You know, they're happy because it's got a splitting moment. A lot of yeah. people sharing like a video of them splitting it. The closest you can get 
is maybe like cracking a poached egg in a brunch place or latte art. Mm. But people have seen it so many times. Um, and then people will keep making claims like, oh, this is the best cookie I've ever had and posting it and then we would just reshare it. And then when people see on Instagram some a friend of theirs saying that they've had the best cookie, other people are like, okay, I'm going to be the judge of that. So then they order. Mm. And it's just with some sort of viral loop where people were saying how good the cookies were. And then uh, other people wanted to try it and agreeing. Uh, yeah, so it just had this virality of it where, you know, in hindsight, it's like, oh, it's so smart. But really at the time, it's just I just wanted these cookies for myself. <laughs> you, created so- you created something you wanted yeah. and the rest of Australia wanted it as well. And I think the I'd love to know what your thought is. You've obviously ran retail shops. Um, you know, you've also done wholesale. What's the difference? Like you're doing online now. Like what direction do you want to be heading in? Like obviously you've got the bakehouse, but how much easier is that online game? I think in the past year, like in the next year, we're going to roll out Passion Tree Velvet cakes delivery everywhere. Because uh, in the past year, people become so familiar with delivery. So we're going to build out a whole logistics system with we already have some delivery drivers here anyway to deliver to our own shops. And then, yeah, we're probably going to build that out and then offer all home delivery because then that also gives us a lot of leverage if, you know, we need to renew a shop. We can totally have the choice where we can just let a cl- shop close down and still cater mm. to all those old customers but just deliver it to them. Um, so that's what that's our plan. Like, if, yeah, you're asking about whether or not we're going to open more shops, we'll focus on online delivery it also lets us test an area if we mm. wanted to test an area we can just deliver to an area um and yes yeah, that's what that's that's what we're going to push for the next and uh, i guess yeah is it you've been quite i mean we met through covid and we'll talk a bit more about covid but we met through covid um isaac eats a lot hooked us up um and then you were very kind to let us you sell your product in our store is that something you're trying to do put it in certain locations as well just to get your product name out there I just um not really like we, people, a lot of people approach us for wholesale. I know that's the I know that's the way Byron Bay cookies went, but um, really we just sell at the moment to friends. That's cafes. awesome. Yeah, or people who are just really cool or kind of like have been supportive back. Um, uh, yeah, like there's a Good Time Charlie's in Nambuka Heads. They support, but that guy's just like really a big fan, and uh, so we ship the cookies up like next day shipping for him even though yeah that's not the best way to do it but mm. uh i've had people in penrith ask to do ask the wholesale i'm like oh, i'm not really doing wholesale for that reason okay. just really wholesale at friends places tell me who those businesses are and i'll uh <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah th- those people have been respectful of the fact i'm like oh there's already a place over yeah, there yeah of course um but yeah because uh, you then referred, you introduced me to the guys at Haberfield and then they said they want it, so they sell it. I think they introduced me to uh, 1943 and now they're going to start selling it as well. So it's just sort of this chain. I don't want anyone near each other. It's not really our, yeah. it's not really our plan. But that, that, that also shows your character as well, Chris, like the fact that you obviously you work with people you want to work with that you like and also you don't oh, want to... also because we're greedy. We want the whole retail value. That's <laughs> 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 no. <Is> Fair enough. <laughs> Um, and so you spoke a little bit about the branding side of things as well. Is that all in-house? Is that all you? Yeah, we do. Uh, Banks here, we had some help um, from the bar brand people. Yeah. We put everything together and they literally just modified the logo and 
modified, slightly changed the color scheme that we had. But before that, we were really struggling. We had all these pictures on the wall and hundreds of images saved and loads of different logos, and we just couldn't bring it together. Um, but then we hired them, and they just took everything and just like it's, if you put them side by side, you're like, why did you pay that much for that logo mm. if you already had this other one? But when we saw what when they put it all together, it just all worked. This so is we were really happy that we did that because we were really struggling for like weeks and weeks. Yeah. Like it's there, but we don't have it. So it's worth investing in a branding guy or um, a branding person. Mm, that's hard to say. Because a brand's really what you make of it. Mm. Um, yeah, like a logo, all that kind of stuff. There's not really an exact science. I like to do things, we like to do things that, um, I can't remember what the word is, but sort of rhyme. Banks your bakehouse, big brownies. Thick, thick cookies doesn't really, but <laughs> uh, that, that roll off the tongue. Yeah. But uh, I think you enjoy branding is really what you made of, make of it. Yeah. And it's essentially Percy your creative Plunkets. outlet. Yeah, Percy Plunkett. <laughs> you're right. Um, can you talk, you've obviously, you know, you've got the, the bakehouse, pastry bell, but the cookies, the brownies. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of, of you going through um, opening a business, the highs and lows, like personally, like how you, what you go through? I think we're very fortunate that there's four of us. Okay. Yeah. Uh, definitely no. Yeah, there's a lot of hardship and troubles, and I hear some of the people on your podcast talk about it, and I think about those moments that we've gone through, with troubles with shops and troubles with other people and staff and things. But we've always had there's always like four of us that discuss everything, like we meet up and discuss and uh, do everything, and all the responsibility isn't really on one person's uh, thing. So, uh, yeah, it's been, we've had really tough times, but we have a really good, we're lucky we've got a really strong support network and everyone's family. So yeah. it's not really having to worry about what other people are, yeah. like there's not the, what other people's ulterior motives and that kind of stuff might be. We don't think about that internally with us. Mm. Um, and we run like the, we run everything in the office Pretty much like a family. Like you read business books where you're supposed to say, uh, "Every you should be running a business as a sports team rather than a family." You know, in sports teams, people get trade and cut uh, to make the team better. But I just can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> we, that's, that's your we, character. We, yeah. we like super soft. It's not just, uh, but not just my character. Just I mean the the team. Mm. And how how is it working with family? Like you obviously, you guys look like you have a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Um, What's it like for you? It's uh, everyone's sort of on the same similar page with what we want to do. So we, we I think we've just been really lucky from that perspective. Mm. Uh, yeah, because over here, like a lot of the other uh, hardship from other operators, where it's sort of all on their shoulders, um, which we do have. Uh, and it was definitely worse when we had shops that weren't doing well because we'd have good shops that were doing really well, and then all that money's just draining out to other mm. places. So in the past three or four years, we've just been able to really tidy up all of our loose ends. So right now, things are going great. Mm. But yeah, we've had those days opening a shop. Like, I know you. your complaint is that you open a shop and it's too busy. <laughs> well, you, you don't know how to handle it. Like, you, you thought you could ease your way into had, it, right? We've had, yeah, a couple of shops where it's like, no one wow. coming in. <laughs> so we, yeah, there's not really, and that's just a grind. Mm. That's just, you know. 
good service, good coffee for a couple of months, and then you might start to see build up. Yeah, and, and yeah. what your social media um, so important for hospitality, <laughs> especially for like your thick cookies, and how important is it for you for your business to grow? Uh, so it's interesting. Social media for us, we have two different. So Passion Tree Velvet, we may, we have to be there when people are looking for us, or when people are looking for a birthday cake you know, wedding cake, that's very much something that people, they need it and then they search for it. You can't really inspire people throughout the year to want a cake, like, you know, constantly tell them about cakes. So that all of our social media and marketing work there goes into SEO and Google. So, you know, to appear higher when people are looking for it. Whereas uh, the thick cookies and brownies, where it's very much more impulse. So we try to make, you know, beautiful pictures and, uh, show people the product constantly. So that one we're always posting. And the nature of it being thick cookies, you know, the thick being sort of like a play of words, the, uh, you know, with the sexual thick stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we get to fuck around and have a lot of fun with that. So that's much. <laughs> can, you, can you share the, um, the one post about the, I think it's Funfetti? The, the, what, was the, what was the caption oh, for it? I think I said that. White chocolate. Yeah, and unicorn shit all over, shit all over the cookie, and then so now it's covered in sprinkles and stuff. But it was brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, and like we call the our original choc chip cookie the the Samuel the OG the Samuel L Jackson of um, what I call the Captain. Like I say, all like the top words. I can't remember. You have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, yeah, just a lot of a lot more fun. Is is uh, your is your social media all done in house for you guys? Yeah, yeah. Do we do all? Yeah, yeah, we do it all That's ourselves. Awesome. You yeah. enjoy it, right? Yeah, and then we have some. Um, and Thick Cookies very much had. So, yeah, we did farmers markets for a while, but then we'd have a lot of support from people like Isaac and the guys at, you know, Good Food Guide. And a lot of uh, social media people have been really, very supportive and friendly. There was very much this great time of. Uh, we were doing it as well, but. Uh, a year ago, where everyone was like, support small businesses, get out there and post and share. That was beautiful, um, so yeah. we were able to we we got lucky off some of that because before that it was just we were just really popular at farmers markets like if the people who were there and tried it loved it and then would come back so there's much more local hyper local back then yeah whereas now we're more a bit bigger in terms of our reach but Chris let me ask you the staying relevant so other than social media how do you stay relevant in your business where really like as soon as you create a product, there's someone the next day trying to create the same product? How is it for you? How, how do you stay relevant in your industry of cakes and cookies? And I think that's one of the reasons also not to become a big chain or grow too big. Like people are saying, oh, you should open a bunch of shops with, shops with thick cookies. But we just prefer the whole idea and approach that we constantly changing. Like throw a lot of the wall and see what sticks like uh, try all new different flavor combinations, uh, try to do things that other people haven't done with it. Uh, but also just a lot of inspiration from other countries. Like a lot of people are doing interesting things in America or in Europe or in Asia. And it's not really worth them to come here and do that. You know, Australia's too small a population for some of the other people. So um, pull a lot of inspiration from those places. Uh, we stay because yeah because there's a good question because for us we have a lot of room to be creative because i think if you it's hard to be creative at a, at a brunch uh you know brunch place because a lot of stuff's been done and people have you're sort of dealing with people's breakfast culture 
like you uh no, things like you can't really get them to start eating totally different things you still need to have your avocados and poached eggs and try to make that more interesting it's much more difficult like i say when it's hard for a glory jeans or a soul origin to do something interesting or fun for uh christmas for example like maybe do a cranberry sandwich or something or turkey mm. item whereas for us we can do like a reindeer cake or a snowman cake or you know we get to do we just have much more room to be creative in fact yeah this whole wall yeah i'll take a photo i'll post it on my um, when we do a post we have a picture of all the cakes we've come up with these are all the active cakes these are cakes we're selling right now so there's a much bigger wall of all the items we've done in the past and uh yeah it's much more of a canvas for us so Uh, so essentially not growing allows you to be stay relevant (laughs) really uh yeah i don't know necessarily how relevant we are it's always a, a struggle we're always worried a list comes out and says these are the best cakes or these are the best baked prices we're not on it and so does, does that uh, does that force you to stay creative like <laughs> um we just have like a real schedule to stay creative and also we we very much encourage the staff to uh create and come up with things it's also a way to engage them yeah because otherwise it can be like a production line um you know even though, even though everything's handmade you know day-to-day can be really similar but if we can get people to come up with items and develop things we sort of give them their own time to come up with stuff uh it's not all just production all the time uh and we just have a schedule where you know we have to release items every two or three months mm. and we have to cull items that people like uh it's just something we forced upon ourselves i think as well yeah because i think that's four or five years ago we had a period where we didn't we had the same items for like nine months and it's, uh, it's just not good for a, a cake shop in a shopping center where people are passing every day just to see the same stuff every day. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the hardest part of it is just working out what to stop doing. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, pop- it's all pretty popular at this point. But essentially, you guys would have a calendar where, all right, Valentine's coming up, Mother's Day's coming up. Uh, we've been much better with that in the past year or two. Okay. In the past, it's been like, <laughs> oh, shit, Valentine's in two weeks. <laughs> Uh, we should we should launch something. Yeah, a bit more organised. Yeah, now we we pretty. We, I think we organised up to. Them. I think before you came in, I was just organising Easter. Wow. Uh, I was organising Easter production numbers, but we all sit together and come up with stuff. Uh, Valentine's is sorted already. Um, we're not doing Chinese New Year this year because they just fall on almost the same day. Mm. What's after that Easter? And then there's a big gap. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. I need to get around to planning the year out. <laughs> Just give me updated with what's for Valentine's. Um, so obviously we met during COVID, and um, obviously we're good mates now, and um, we talk a lot about hospitality and business. But what what did COVID? Um, what effect did it have on your business and on you? Uh, we stood. So we started to we started to experience it in January, and February, like the slight drops and like having to tell landlords hey business is slowing down and them not believing for our ages and then it all over the space of like a day or two the or everyone's like yeah it started getting really extreme You're like oh yeah we've been telling you for like a month that people are losing their purchasing confidence and all that kind of stuff it was because and because we are in macquarie and broadway which have a heavy asian influence and those places were hit earlier uh those those communities knew from their own media that it was getting bad in asia so they weren't going out 
Um, and one of the first hotspots was Bride. Uh, <coughs> so we sort of knew earlier Sean. But um, we have had to close all the stores. You know, it's interesting because we've gone through a lot of hardship and closing stores and trouble here and there. And it's sort of, it wasn't really too stressful because it's not the worst stuff that we've been through. Like, oh, I mean, it is, sorry, it is, but uh, the fact that everyone was going through it, it's like you're not experiencing it as this is our fuck up and we've messed up and 100%. beating ourselves up. Yeah. It's more like going out there. And like, I remember going, going to, to do the a deep shutdown of our Broadway shop and other people were shutting down as well. It's like, hey, guys. It's, it's not okay, our fault. Closing. It's not our fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And because also I, we sort of knew that, you know, the shopping is – some people I talked to are getting really stressed out. Like, oh, they're going to lose their shop and all that kind of stuff. And, like, they're not going to let everyone close. Mm. Like, if and if you lose everything, that means everyone's going to lose everything. So we, we didn't really think uh, – we got lucky the government also supported as well. But we were okay uh, – we weren't too stressed out compared to other people yeah. about it. So we stood down everyone in the, in the bakery and um, we stood down everyone in the bakery and the office and then I put all the... We put Passion Tree Velvet online and all the cookies online for delivery overnight. I just spent a night quickly programming and setting up a website and doing all that kind of stuff. I'd been, I'd done about two or three months before I'd done a lot of, I spent like two or three weeks doing tests with shipping and packaging and checking shelf life and quality control. And it was just one of those things that I just never got around to actually putting it online because mm. it's too busy. And so everything was actually just sitting there ready to go. Um, but so the shutdown was 23rd of March. Uh, and we were about to. We were also shop fitting Banksia. That's why I didn't have time to put cookies online. Wow. We are opening Banksia. At Banksia was supposed to open first of April, so it was a week before that we got shut down notice. Even shop fitters, everyone was like full lockdown, so shop, the shop fitters not allowed to go out as well. We were lucky that we we're bakery, so we're considered essential services. So we all. I was always out throughout the whole lockdown, and we were. Um, yeah, so a week before we were supposed to open, shut down. <laughs> like not even all supposed right. to open. Um, and so we are building towards that. We'd hired a whole bunch of staff for that, which, you know, the job keepers, uh, <coughs> I can't remember exactly the details, but, you know, staff had to be working for a certain amount of time before they were covered by job mm. keepers. And these are all new employees. Uh, and then cookies just took off like a rocket, <coughs> just went crazy. And so we stood people down for like two or three weeks, two, two or three days, sorry. And then we asked everyone to come back. And wow. that's the other thing about the cookies was, I know other people had issues with, oh man, there's so many elements coming to play with this corona. I know other people had issues with getting stock in like flour and all that like, butter and dairy products because all the supply chains were broken. But we were, we were also supposed to be doing the Easter show for cookies. So I was, uh, one thing, I was, we were sitting on like tens of thousands of dollars worth of like stock, like flour, chocolate that we were buying, getting ready to do the Easter show. That then got cancelled as well. Wow! So that was, all, and I remember being in with Sammy, our warehouse operations guy, and putting like just being like, oh, shit. And we just put everything up on a pallet, deep like storage, put it away, and be like, what are we gonna do with all these ingredients? And then it was like all used up within two or three weeks. Uh, uh, so we were lucky that we were also sitting on a lot of stock because we had other things that we were supposed to be doing. Mm. Um, but yeah, lockdown happened. 
two or three days and then we asked people to come back not everyone to come back so we basically everyone who was on job keepers pretty much stay home job keepers or students who not covered will pay you to work so that's they can awesome. get money yeah um well done for that that's really cool yeah it's just that uh well they need to we see these people every day i don't understand this thing where you can like just screw over mm. the people you spend all day with every day <laughs> but the fact that you told you i mean you could have saved a lot of money by bringing those job keeper people in at the start but you wanted to look after your, your family really you, you call them family right yeah. like um but uh yeah, so we got fortunate for those sort of unfortunate and fortunate mm. in that sort of way. Uh, yeah, and then we, because we wanted to have, we wanted to make more work so we can bring in more staff. Uh, so we developed the big brownies. Yeah, to go alongside. So we developed that during COVID, um, and all the office staff became delivery drivers. So we could also offer them work. Uh, so people we were driving all over Sydney. <coughs> The, the office staff up here um yeah just dealt with it blow by blow and you got pretty yeah, we're pretty lucky that we were sort of on the cusp of about to do a lot of stuff that we could easily move over mm. uh and we have a lot of facets of the business we used to sort of pivoting yeah like that um yeah luck i don't know i don't know if it's luck or not but well, you guys, obviously, the Thick Cookies, obviously, like I said, kind of got you out of the trouble there a little bit with, with you know, because online you can send them out. We are opening for takeaway. Um, Australia's relatively gone back to normal in regards to trading. How do you see the future of hospitality post-COVID? I think um, we see that people are going to be much more willing to pay for some, like, convenience, like getting things delivered, much, be much more familiar with that. Yeah. So... Yeah, passion tree will we'll, we see as being more, we're going to try and make it more online, uh, delivery to people, more of that sort of, a personalized bespoke service, but to people's like, home or venue. Um, it's hard to say for shopping centers. I think, what, 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 when is, what is now? It's February. No, it's January. January. Yeah. <laughs> it's January, and what, JobKeepers is just sort of, winding down mm. we're getting a vaccine now so it's hard to say just a matter of time like really because yeah because yeah, i mean if we just lose all gov all support and things get worse and all shops shut down it's totally different and people yeah. everyone loses their jobs uh it'll be a different situation but i mean then we've dealt with it best in the world so far amazing us <laughs> in new zealand 100 percent, yeah, yeah. And you know, but also specifically new south wales mm. like the fact that we get all the cases uh, and we've kept a lot of the businesses open during that time. And like, because uh, we were in Queensland in October, November, and people, they live with much more fear up there of the, the yeah. COVID. They haven't, and they keep it out of the borders. But um, over here, when this cases come that come around, people like, you saw those testing numbers recently, like yeah. people are out there. They know their responsibility to the rest of the community in Sydney, really pull people together. I, yeah, I, th I think I think New South Wales, you're 100 percent right. Is has dealt with it the best. They've kept it safe, but kept businesses open. Like yeah. you see in Queensland last week, they went into three day instant <coughs> lockdown. You know, mm -hmm. so. Um, but I mean, I think they they probably need to do that. That they don't have as much experience dealing with it. That's true. As we do down yeah. there. Yeah. Like we've got apps like that New South Wales service check in app. Best. Like where they just check in and because uh, I do think that there's a risky thing there where all of the wait staff 
or front of house staff are now suddenly responsible for a health crisis, like in terms of signing people in, checking everyone's spacing out or wearing a mask. Mm. Suddenly they're policing. Like I, I'm sitting back here in the office and stuff, but then all the staff are policing that mm. suddenly and they have all this responsibility where, you know, that's been unfair. Like the Surface New South Wales thing helps where lot, yeah. it maintains that network of where everyone was checking in and checking out and the government has said this is what you got to use so it's very clearly outlined here in Sydney but um, before that you know signing on pieces of paper and checking in on different apps and yeah. stuff um, yeah I think uh, yeah it's just an interesting idea that suddenly mm-hmm. all the wait staff or front of house staff in all these places are suddenly responsible yeah. or getting in trouble with as well from the government for not doing things properly and we're getting tough and there's every week because we have a host every weekend, and we get essentially abused at nearly once a day. Yeah, yeah and, the, and the abuse. Yeah, from yeah. customers don't want to sign in, and we're like, yeah. "This is not our decision. Like, this yeah. is." The I can story. understand if we mess something up with your order or something. Totally. You don't want people. Sorry, you don't want people to be abusive, but why they might be unhappy. Mm. But then all the front of house staff being responsible for that. A lot of pressure as well. Mm. Yeah, and also with that as well with the customers, you are they're also the front line of managing with a lot of other people's like it's not just people are mean yeah. people are dealing with a lot of mental health issues themselves and maybe they're not seeing as many people and they just happen to be take, taking it out mm. in those situations that we've all seen viral videos or heard stories about yeah but uh yeah just interesting that they're on the front line of that well i think i think we're on the covid on the you know i don't we haven't seen the last of covid we're obviously still living in it but i think that like you said the vaccine and whatnot coming up um Moving forward, more positive. What what's something? What's one thing you're super proud about? What you with everything you've created? Um, super proud about. Oh, did I? Stuff on huh? <laughs> uh, probably like if you if you because of the amount of time we've been doing it, I think. Well, I, what we want to do is we want these. Australia's pretty young country, so if the brand has been around for. 20, 30, 40 years, they can be considered a national sort of almost heritage brand. We've been around for eight years as a cake shop. We want to be around for 20, 30 years. And just, I think by doing that, you become like part of the sort of fabric of that community and of that country. Like I'm from England. When people come here to Sydney and then we pop around Sydney to all of the shops that and places that we built, they're all busy. You, you, and in, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, you can might be able to look back and say you're already part of this society in that way. Yeah. I mean, about 100 years, maybe people won't remember it uh, per se, but that would probably be the proudest bit. Um, and you know, sorry, my point is that you look back 10 years, how long have we eight years now? We're almost at 3 million macarons sold. For example, <laughs> like a number like that, whereas... Um, uh, and the amount of staff, amount of jobs we've created over that time, mm. thousands of jobs created. And you start, you see on LinkedIn and people, because it pops up and someone's like, they, loads of these Instagram, the LinkedIn profiles have like Passion Tree Velvet listed as like their work experience, all that kind of thing. That's cool. That's yeah. pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's off the top of my head. I can't think. Starting to, I really like the, because I've come from another country, so I don't have, like, uh, school friends and things who are all in the local area. But in the past year, I've really enjoyed the fact that people have been much more open to talk about 
their businesses and working mm. together and that kind of thing. So we built much uh, more integrated into that that community. Yeah. As well, the community's become stronger. I feel like. What do you think about that? Do you think the food hospitality was it? Yeah, I I, I see the community more supportive. Of each other, though. yeah. Everyone wants yeah. to support each other, and I think it took it took the pandemic for that to happen, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think people are as competitive or as secretive, like you said. You know, what's what goes in thick cookies is just excellent ingredients, yeah. you know. And and I think for me, I've seen everyone wanting to help. Everyone's still very like looking out for them, their business and that, but there's a lot more people that are open to help and supporting. Mm. So yeah, that's what I feel. Yeah. Have you have you been interviewed for your own podcast yet? I haven't. No. <laughs> My story is not that great. It's. <laughs> Oh, just Jay interviewed Jay interviewed me actually. So, oh, yeah. um, started a cafe as really successful. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's one of those things you don't want to talk about yourself. <laughs> um, oh, I have to say as well, I've told you before we should rename this podcast to One Hundred Percent. I've only said it once or twice. This yeah, life. this one I've been waiting for you to say a couple of times. I've been so. very conscious of it in the back of my mind. So, Hundred Percent is one of the things I say nearly. Hundred Percent. Hundred Percent. What? What's one thing you want people to say about your venue or your products after they've tried it or visited? Uh, At least one thing. I mean, you, the one thing would just be almost the, it should almost just be the standard thing, not something, but that they, it lived up to their expectations and you would hope that expectation mm. is pretty high. This is one of the problems we have with like reviews per se <laughs> is that People often would just leave a review if something's slightly wrong or, you know, you know, everyone thinks they're Michelin. Like, even if they have a really good experience, three out of five, not Michelin star. But if you, like, you know, we set our expectations high and then we match them, people don't leave a, a positive review, mm. per se. Well, not as many people. Because we say, you know, in each location, you serve 100 customers a day, uh, seven days a week. You know, if, all year for multiple years and then you have like five ten negative reviews on there it doesn't represent everyone i mean but obviously if you see a whole bunch come in that are clearly demonstrating a trend yeah something's wrong different. yeah but um yeah i guess i guess it would just be that we people we live up to people's expectations that mm. we then set because i mean that's set with everything we say and tell people uh and post online that you know we're supposed to be this good and then you like you said people reposting saying these are the best cookies oh yeah with the cookies yeah i mean that's almost the opposite what was the actual question specifically so um what's the one thing you you want people to say about your venue or your product after they've tried or tasted it yeah almost be the the stressful thing is what they might say if you don't live up to it that's Mm. more uh, i would hope that it's as good as what we're supposed to be serving yeah yeah apart from that like nothing too grandiose yeah yeah, we're not like a. Yeah, just hope that we live up to the expectations that we set for them when yeah. they come in, uh, which we also want to be pretty high. Yeah, that's cool. And I got one more question before I ask that. Like, you know that last question, what it is? But um, is there anything you think I should have added to this podcast, or any valuable information that you want to add before we go on? Uh, yeah, you should name it. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah, and we should. Hundred percent table for two. Dinner. Oh, is it just table for two, not dinner for? It's not dinner for two, is it right? <laughs> I'll um, I'll take you out. Where's for the dinner. snacks? We need snacks. <laughs> I'm in your office, man. <laughs> Where's the cookies? Oh yeah, shit. Okay. <laughs> Anything uh, you should add? No, 
Like yeah. I said before, I think I like I like this. This podcast is not specifically like a list, just questions. Mm. It's like you listen and ask different questions back. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, do more. Do more. Do more podcasts. Cool. Are you just interviewing people you know and friends, or have you got a whole bunch of people you don't know? No, nah, I've interviewed probably. I've done twenty. This is gonna be my twenty fifth. Yeah. I think there's probably been about fifteen that I know, and the other ten are people that <laughs> I know in the industry. Maybe through Instagram or Facebook, and um, eventually I want to do a lot more on Zoom and do a lot more overseas. Oh, that was one thing I just remembered. Interview people. It's gonna be all food, right? Not just necessarily people who run all shops food. and venues. Like it'd be interesting to talk to. Yeah. I don't like food. Some sort of some producers yeah. or. Um, that kind of thing as well. Yeah, we want it. We definitely want to broaden. I think for me, the first ten was like very focused on like cafes, and yeah. And now we want to talk about food service and yeah, and because you've got a lot of people who are restaurateurs or cafe operators listening, and maybe they want to hear from the butter maker yeah. or the farmer, yeah, as well. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, rather than over and over again, more and more because it's nice to listen to them and, and hear a familiar experience and be like, oh, few it wasn't just us. We went through that. That's so true, yeah. But then, yeah. You also want to hear different stories. Yeah, people, yeah. yeah. We, um, I want to focus a little bit as well. Um, this year we'll do like, we're going to do four or five episodes of, with social media owners. So like Isaac, Senior Brunch Callers. Yeah, like, um, that's a good You know, and well. that way they, we, people can learn what they can grow in their business. So, and then leadership's one thing I really, I want to start talking to leaders in the industry. So it might be CEOs of successful businesses, but ask them specific <laughs> leadership questions to help them grow yeah. their Even team. big companies, yeah. Big companies, yeah. That'd yeah be, so. That'd be cool. So if you know anyone, let me know, huh? Mm, okay. um, all right, so obviously, <laughs> have a think about it and let me know. But um, obviously, the last question I ask is from the a podcast, How I Do This, um, How I Built This, sorry. And the question he always asks at the end is, How much of your success do you put down to luck and how much to hard work? Um, oh, I should have prepared for this. <laughs> I knew it was <laughs> luck or hard work? I would say that. I don't know, it's always that thing that's probably hard work. Hard work with, uh, oh shit, both. <laughs> yeah. Is that a cop out? No, and it's. Yeah, because I mean, the luck only really comes about if you put in the hard work to put yourselves in a position that uh, you're ready to take advantage of any lucky opportunities that come up. Uh, yeah. Because we definitely spent five or six years grinding it out. The luck's now coming uh, to you, right? Yeah. Luck, hard work. And try to be smart as well. Like hard, you can work hard, but and not smart, and that doesn't really help either. Mm. Luck. I'd probably be more leading on the slightly on the hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Just from our, just from the experience that we've had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of hours, six, seven days a week, is just absolute normal. Like uh, almost to the point where I don't know what to do. I have a day off. <laughs> it's funny, huh? Yeah, I can't sit there and watch TV series. Yeah, no. I'm yeah, like uh, used to be able to. <laughs> but your your brain doesn't stop though. Eh? I can imagine you constantly thinking about it. Yeah, oh, and I just feel like I'm wasting. I could be doing something productive. Productive. Also, because I don't necessarily people will go. Oh, you got to learn to work less or relax, some kind of thing. But I don't really necessarily find a lot of this stuff always like hard work. You know, that sort of work life balance thing don't necessarily believe in you know the work is the is the lifestyle it's well. kind of integrated with what you're yeah. doing and i love i love seeing your instagram you do the day one of day three oh that's something that i've just started this yeah can yeah. you talk a little bit about that's really cool because people i know we did so much last year and so many interesting cool things but it just went by in a flash and mm -hmm. so people would 
and oh, and especially now in this time, you catch up with people and they go, ah, oh, you know, how have things been going? And they want more detail because everyone's life's been topsy turvy. And like, it's hard to remember exactly what we did last year. Yeah. So, you know, and I read all this stuff about the benefits of journaling. And I know that I just wouldn't stick to that, like a physically writing a journal. Yeah. So yeah, I just decided, you know, post every single day on Instagram what I did and also forced me to capture some memories and take a moment to stop and go, oh, this, let's capture this. Yeah. Oh, well, I should capture this moment as well. We should take a photo. hundred percent. As you were saying that. <laughs> because I know I do. Yeah, I do forget and stuff. And then, uh, but the other day I just, we had KFC first time. We were talking about fried chicken and then we were like, which one's the best fried chicken? Blah, blah. I haven't had KFC in ages. So then we just went out and bought KFC, some Korean fried chicken things. Just did a big compare. That's cool. Compare the fried chicken place. KFC but is really good. I forgot. Is that how the good first time you've had it? No, no, I had it. But it's just like one of those things oh, where, you're okay. like, if I'm going to have fried chicken, I might as well go somewhere famous for it, yeah, like yeah. butter or something at Parramatta. Yeah. Um, and so, just had it a long time. I haven't had it in such a long time. That's so cool. Man. And it's, it's, KFC is good. That's awesome. <laughs> That's no, what we're going to end cool. the podcast on. Right? On KFC. KFC. <laughs> um, oh, but I went, met my wife in KFC. So in in, in Korea. Korea. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. Even uh, our wedding invite had a picture of, of her looking at her wedding ring and me holding a piece of chicken. We took the photo. Are you serious? Proposed. Wow. And the photo we took after was us in KFC. Because everyone knows that we met in KFC. That's so it's beautiful, everybody. man. It's really yeah, cool. Now everyone, know. yeah. now everyone <laughs> knows, yeah. yeah. Um, Chris, thank you for obviously helping us out during COVID, for your friendship. And no, both. Same way. It's yeah. um, friends for life now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I told you I'm going to come and help you dig a hole at your farm. If you need hands. But we're going to talk about a few other things off, off air as well when I get off the podcast. But um, my, I really do appreciate your friendship. Congratulations on the podcast. I mean, you've hit big time getting someone like me on this podcast. Well, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, wow. <laughs> our viewers should go so. straight up from here. So. But um, thank you so much, brother. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it.